Hi, I'm James Valentine. This is Life's Booming. Grab a cuppa and get ready for an amazing story. Are you ready? Here we go. It's the middle of January and I'm sitting on the edge of the pool in the backyard of my parents' house in southwest Sydney. The HSC is over and as my friends and I wait for our results, my house has become the place for hanging out, swimming and wondering what the world holds for us next. We call them banana chair dates. You guessed it, everyone rolls up with a banana lounge and an esky to while away the day. It's pretty noisy today. Donnie, Damo, Kath with a K, Kath with a C, Greg and Belinda are over making the most of the pool and my mum's best triangle sandwiches and performing their best Lionel Richie impressions. I can feel the sun burning what's not covered by my blue Sunseeker bikini that I got for Christmas. And I started to think, am I getting skin cancer? So I move a couple of feet to the left to catch the shade cast by the huge frangipani. We've all been working casual summer jobs since finishing high school. But it's not just our parents that are wondering what we're going to do with our lives. I've got to get a proper job. I can't sell watches forever. But what is it I really want to do? I'm broken from my reverie by the sting of chlorinated water shooting up my nose and into my eyes as Greg bombs into the pool. Greg, you I shout. Last one, Ian's a rotten egg. Donnie backflips into the pool too. Kath looks at me and rolls her eyes. Bloody boys. She slips down into the water before she can be pushed in and I dive to tackle Greg. When you finished up at high school, did you know what you wanted to be? For, for lots of school leavers, for most of us, it's, it's likely you might not be sure of what you want to be when you, when you grow up. There's so many options, so much world to see. For Jenny Muldoon, a spur-of-the-moment decision while sitting around a swimming pool with her friends started her on a journey that would lead to some pretty extraordinary life experiences. Being hugged by Oprah looking after John Travolta's family, being in charge of hundreds of children as they're flown around the world to sing... Gorgeous. This decision was Jenny's no regrets moment. Hello, Jenny. Hello, James. How are you? (laughs) I'm pretty riveted as to how we're going to get from the swimming pool to Oprah. So at that moment, you're sort of 18, 19. You've finished school at that point? I have finished school, finished my HSC and starting to make decisions about life. What were you actually doing? What did you think you were going to be doing? Well, I actually had no idea. My father was a jeweller, so I was working in his jewellery store, and that certainly wasn't going to be my career. I was sort of tossing up different avenues. I really had no idea at that stage. It was more a case of, let's see what comes up. When we finished school, I had a really great group of male and female friends and my place was the go-to place because we had the nice swimming pool and all the banana lounges. So every day we'd sit around the pool and talk about life. So one afternoon I'm sitting there dangling my feet in the pool, beautiful sunny day, we're all sitting there in our cozies and one of my male friends says, I think I might join the cops. And I sat there and reflected and went, Gee, that sounds like fun. And so I did. That was the journey, the catalyst for me kicking off. This is the first time I've heard the cops framed as, that sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's probably not the most fun job in the world, but there were aspects of it that were absolutely really good fun. It doesn't seem like a lark 
to join the cops, doesn't it? It's like, let's let's all go get a job in the same bar or something, or, you know, <laughs> let's even let's, I don't know, maybe the military even sounds like like adventure. Cops does sound to me like it's going to be hard work. Well, well, it, 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 it was. I think the most appealing thing to me was, you know, when you're 19, you're fearless, you have that ability to go, wow, look at the opportunities I've got here. There's police, water police, there's Mounties, there's detectives, forensics, there's fingerprints, there's crime. So it was all those things that I thought, well, I don't exactly know what I want to do, but it's a great starting point. It sounds like fun. I'm sure I'm going to meet a lot of great people. And therefore, I decided that that would be the journey that I would start on. You turn up at the police academy. What year? This was in 1984. I went through Redfern Police Academy. We were, in fact, the last class to go through Redfern. And was the Redfern Academy where the stables are now, where the police stables are now? Yes, they were. We had the mounted police. They used to do amazing parades. So when we had passing out parades, they had the beautiful horses with their dressage on and they would parade around the the grounds each day. A really interesting atmosphere for us. Like even at that point, did you think, wow, this is a big hill to climb? There's only a few women here. How did the guys accept you and why did you think, okay, I'll be all right here? Well, when I went into the academy, there were, in my class, class 200 we were, there were 180 participants and nine women. So it was broken up into three classes. There was three women in my class. And I think from day one, it's all about how you present yourself and how you communicate is how you'll be accepted. So I kind of felt I've got to go in there, I've got to be myself, I've got to toughen up a bit because I was probably what come from a very protected background. I hadn't had a lot of life experience and I thought, go in, be friendly, be yourself. If you need help, ask for help because I think that was one of the keys for me actually saying I'm struggling at times. I felt that even though it was male-dominated, even though our instructors were hard as nails, the way that the drill sergeants would yell at us, the expectation for you to pass the physical, which was quite strenuous. At one stage, we had to run. So you had to run. We'd run to Heartbreak, it was called Heartbreak Hill, where they used to train the eastern suburbs footballers. And at one stage there, we had to sprint up and down the hills and I was always probably in the in the back of the pack, even though I was reasonably fit for a female, but there were so many males that we were competing against. But, you know, I would always be supported. There were times where we had to jump fences and the guys would give me a leg up to get me over. But, you know, they would cheer me on. Come on, you can do it. You can do one more. And that camaraderie existed all throughout my policing career. Yeah, isn't that great? Because I would have thought there might have been a bit of, what about when you got out at the stations? Was there a bit of the old cops going, listen, you Sheilas, we're here to do the typing. I don't know what the hell you're doing here thinking you're police women. (gasps) Funny you should say that, James, because (laughs) I actually think I was sent to Redfern as a bit of a testing ground because I think I was perceived as being probably a little too soft. I was perceived as not being an aggressive type person. I think back in that day, like we're talking nearly 40 years ago now, it was like, well, I'm not sure if this Sheila will cut it. We'll send her to Redfern, see if she can, if she cuts the mustard. And I showed up at Redfern and there was very much the old school. There was a lot of very senior police that had been there, males that had been there for a long time. 
But there was also a group of females who immediately after I got there gave me this sense of belonging. They looked after me. They cared for me. They told me who to stay away from. They told me who to go to for support. It was that connection and that female camaraderie which helped me adjust quite quickly. We often had times where there's a brawl down at the Redfern Hotel. So someone would say to me, oh, you, you stay and do the phones. The guys will go and get that. And all of my female colleagues would go, no way, we're on the truck, we're going. And off we would go. And I still remember some of my colleagues, one in particular, Cheryl, Cheryl would say, come on, Molly, we're going and we're going to get into this. And, and we did. And it was those types of events that really built your confidence to know that even though it was a group of women, that we could do it. And I never felt harassed. I never felt uncomfortable because in that day and age, you'd just give it back. There would be sexist remarks made, there would be comments made, and it was basically just give it all back. But that was just how you survived back then. But tough. Like I, I knew Redfern a little in those days. I lived in, in Tilopia Street on the sort of other side of the, the, the big towers there from about 90 or so. And it, it was a tough suburb. And the, that relationship between Indigenous Australians and the police, that, that must have been, that's a challenge. I feel that when you think about the circle of life, how amazing this story is. So I'm now at the Opera House and about four or five years ago, one of our producers came to me and said, I want you to help me meet up with the commander of Redfern. I want to produce a piece of theatre called Redfern Fights Back. And this guy's very talented. He put it all together. And it was the story of a situation where you have a police officer with First Nations peoples, some were teenagers, some male, some female, and at any stage in the performance, the audience could get up and stop either the behaviour of the police officer or the behaviour of the person, the actors. And it, it's the, the messaging was that as you go through phases in your life, your behaviours can dictate how other people respond. And it was extremely powerful, like even to the point where my CEO, Louise, was sitting next to me we were both on edge because there were tensions, but at, at last they were talking about the problems in the breakdown of how police speak to First Nations people and how sometimes younger people of First Nations don't understand the authority from the police. And it was about bringing the two sides together to say that we're not on opposing sides. It's about each other's behaviour. So it was a really powerful. I went through some tough times at Redfern, but it also, for me, was where I learnt the most about life, where I learnt the most about being able to assess people and understand the differences and try to understand why there was this, this huge void between First Nations people and the police. And I look back now with my experience with the Opera House and everything we do with our First Nations people and I can really see, I wish I could go back in time and, and try and do more back then. And so after Redfern, did, did, what, what did you do then? Whilst I was at Redfern, I was chosen to go up to King's Cross to do some undercover work, probably because at that stage there was not a lot of women doing undercover work except for a few exceptional people that were working in that area full time. I went up to King's Cross. It was called a woodchuck program, which funny names, which the police do. And it was about learning about detectives, learning about drug work, learning about undercover work. And quite often they would throw you into scenarios where you would 
you may go and buy a small amount of drugs and it was called a, a buy bust and you would go and they'd go and arrest people. So I did three months up at King's Cross and then it was the stage where they put out an expression of interest for an undercover course, an under, first ever undercover drug squad course. So I thought, oh, that sounds like fun again. <laughs> so I applied, went for an interview, which was quite challenging and got selected for the course. And I'm walking in on day one, really nervous, didn't know how to look, act because you're supposed to be getting ready for an undercover course. And so I'm walking into the coffee shop in the old Remington building and I see this guy and I think, there's some stra- something drew me to him and it wasn't the fact that he was quite a nice looking boy, but I was standing next to him and I said, oh, hi, what are you here for? He said, oh, I'm on a special course. And I said, oh, I'm on a special course. And turns out he was on the same course. So he started talking about his brother. He said, oh, my brother is in the police. My brother works undercover. My brother's an instructor on this course. My, lover, my brother lives at Potts Point. I'm going, oh, my brother, my brother. Anyway, we get up to the course, meet everyone, and then we head down to Goulburn to do the course. And it turns out that his brother is now my husband. Yeah. <laughs> so, so very interesting. It certainly wasn't love at first sight because it wasn't until many years later where we worked together in the Drug Enforcement Agency that we actually became a couple and later got married. So funny story there. So entering the drug world set me up for the future with my husband. But surely when, when, when people say, how do you meet, you go, undercover. I was, I was frisking him, you know, <laughs> I was sort of, I had to, you know, like surely you do that. <laughs> well, actually it was quite funny because when we were together we were working at one of the drug task force. So we went into our boss at the time and said, we need to tell you that we're together. And he goes, oh, I know you're together. You're doing such a good job. And it's like you're a couple. And we're going, yes, we are a couple. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had to break the news to him. And he's like, oh, he was one of these lovely old fashioned. Oh, well, yes, let's all just stay professional. And I'm sure it'll be all right. And it was because there's been many phases through my career where I've actually worked with my husband, which strangely enough, goes pretty well. All right. So let's move on to the sort of post-police world then. What happened? Did you decide as though you'd had enough in the police or an opportunity arose? What, what occurred? Two things were the catalyst for me leaving. The drug squad was fast. It was exciting. It, it had an impact on me because I thought I was making a difference. Homicide squad was a very different, more strategic role where you had to have the patience and the, those really amazing investigative skills It was a feather in my cap because working at the Homicide Squad, I felt very privileged to work with such legendary detectives that have had gone before me. But I really felt that it impacted me, both my mental health and my health in general, because to see people suffering in such a way really affected me. And I thought, time for a change. So strangely enough, my husband actually cuts out this little article that was in the Sydney Morning Herald advertising for a female investigator at Qantas. And like, it's very rare, it would never happen now, but specifically advertising for a female. So I thought, it's a sign. It's a sign. I applied for this role, got interviewed, came back for second interview, third interview, and actually won the role. And it was life-changing because I'd learnt so much about life from my policing career and about people. And now I was going into the corporate world to a whole new a whole new area. And what did Qantas want? What were they looking for? What did they want you to investigate? Qantas has 36,000 employees, a lot 
that worked internationally. So we would do anything from there may have been within freight, there's a lot of theft and a lot of a lot of risk to a flight attendant that may have been overseas and been assaulted. So anything that could involve a criminal event, any investigation that needed to be done with respect to fraud, theft, crime. So if you think of an organisation that big that has ports worldwide, the amount of work that us as investigators had to do was quite unique. There was also a lot of police do investigations where they require flight manifests to know if there's criminals travelling internationally and having the police background, the majority of the investigators came from the police, both AFP and New South Wales, we were able to provide our insight into both policing and provide police with information to be able to do their job as effectively too. At the time, group security at Qantas had 90 staff. So when you think about an airline, that was the amount of security professionals working there. And we had investigators, we had people that would do audits all over the world. We had our teams that looked after flight control. That's its own police force, isn't it? 90 people is a lot of people. You would be amazed at actually how, how busy we were. And, you know, lots of very interesting investigations that we would do. I'm also thinking that date-wise, are you there after 9-11? I am there. I am there absolutely during 9-11. It changed the world. Working for an airline, the learning curve was so steep because we'd gone from protecting our people, protecting our ports, to how now do we look at that terrorism risk of protecting our flight crew on the aircraft? So things from reinforced cockpit doors, training of staff, it was a phenomenal change in the way that everybody looked at security enormous learning experience, enormous, I suppose, emotional experience to have been there during 9-11 and very steep learning curve for all of us in that profession to risk assess everything that we did. So yeah, really, really exceptional time. I was actually on an aircraft flying to the South Pacific to do an audit. Wherever any of our security people were on the ground, they were just put straight into action to be able to support those local areas and local airlines because Everyone was just in a panic. What do we do with our aircraft? What do we do with our ports? How do we protect? How do we get people out of certain countries? Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. I can't imagine like the atmosphere in in an airline after 9-11. Like it must have been, here planes have been used as weapons and it must have been, it must have taken such a long time. I don't know that we've ever felt as comfortable as we might have in 2000 back in in planes. Yeah, really uh, extraordinary time. One of the most amazing jobs that I had to do was the I still call Australia Home campaign where we took 20 children all around the world singing I still call Australia Home. This was done pre-9-11 and there is no way that the risks associated with that were so different from when I did it. So we, we did this in 1998 and then uh, September 11 occurred. So it would have been a whole different risk profile had we have had to do it then. And this is this is the kids in the white shirts and the and the black pants all standing on the glaciers, all that sort of stuff, right? That is the one. So I can sing, I still call Australia home. In every language and backwards, I ha- I know that song so well. <laughs> this was probably one of the most extraordinary life experiences. And I, I reflect back and I think, I just don't know how I was so lucky to be able to be part of that. It was 
1998, the first Still Call Australia Home was the most expensive commercial ever made. And to this day, it's recognised as one of the most powerful marketing advertisements that were ever done. I can remember my boss, Jeff, coming to me saying, oh my God, they've, they've got a secret project. They asked me for a staff member that I thought would fit. He said, I've picked you, go and get a briefing. So I went and had a briefing and I was so excited because they're saying, we're going to travel around the world for up to six months. We're going to take 20 kids with us. We're going to go to all of these locations. Your job is to keep them safe and secure. I'm thinking, how hard can that be? Um, So (laughs) I went down to Melbourne. It was the Australian Girls Choir and the National Boys Choir where they they did a casting. The kids actually didn't have to sing, but they're all in the choir. So so, because we pre-recorded the singing. But I went down after they'd selected the kids into the Hyatt Hotel in Melbourne and did a presentation on why I was the right person to travel with their children to keep them safe. And this was pre-emails, pre-every child having a mobile phone, pre-Facebook, pre-Snapchat. It was, let's write to mum and dad tonight or let's write to your family. So I did a presentation. I'm the person that's going to take your kids around the world have confidence in me. Off we went after we got through all of that and travelled to some of the most amazing locations. Our first trip was Patagonia and I didn't even know where Patagonia was. 24 hours later, we're out riding with gauchos out <laughs> out in the, in the fields. You know, I had a little girl holding my hand at a glacier merino in Patagonia saying, oh my God, Aunty Jenny, they called me Aunty Jenny, I've never seen snow and the first thing she sees is this ginormous glacier with a piece of ice like the size of a car falling into the water. The most spectacular scenery even now, I still can think about those images of these amazing things. Went to the Great Wall of China where we did a shoot there. They actually ran out of kids so they dressed me up in black and white so I'm actually (laughs) in the ad. I'm the kid at the end singing, uh, still call Australia home and luckily my voice wasn't included. So I have that image. Uh, One of the photographers took the shot of me being one of the choir kids. I was able to do dual roles. I think it was my undercover work got me that gig. (laughs) And then I think the most amazing event, and we did a shoot in Kings Canyon in the Northern Territory. What we did was we flew up 200 kids on a 747 and some of the local children dressed them all up in black and white. And we did this major logistical exercise where We had to have 10 kids in a chopper, fly them up onto Kings Canyon, get them in position, and we had 20 flights. We had to get 200 kids up into this uh, area. Then you had all the producers saying, we want the kid there, we want the light here, we want this. So we had to feed them, water them, have them sit because it's really hot. Sit, 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 stand, 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 get them ready for the shot. The first lot of kids were airlifted in at seven with me. And we got everybody up for the shot because we had to get it at exactly the right lighting time. At the end of the day, everyone was on a high because we'd got this amazing footage right at the right light. We had, everything went to plan. But what they didn't factor in was a massive storm that was scheduled to come in later that evening because we thought we'd be down by then. So choppers started coming. We've got the shot. Everyone's excited. So the producers, directors, they all head back down. Choppers are coming in. I'm loading all the kids on, the chaperones. All of these people were helping get the kids down. And then this enormous storm hits. And I'm talking pouring rain, 
thunder. So the choppers then ground. So I'm on a radio, so they're saying, Jen, we can't, we can't get the kids down and you. <laughs> Not so much worried about me. We're going to have to look after them. I thought, oh, my God, I'm stuck up there with 10 kids. And they were aged. The eldest was, the youngest was nine. The eldest was 12. So they're, they're little kids. I thought, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So I said, what else can we do? Let's sing. So we sat around, huddled together because at that stage we had no wet weather gear. What the choppers did, one of the choppers came up and dropped down food, water and some blankets and some wet weather gear. So we huddled like it made a little tent. Then they're radioing me saying, we're not sure if we're going to be able to get up because now we don't have the light and we can't find a spot. Anyway, cutting a very long story short, the storm subsided. Finally, we get the call at about 10 o'clock at night. We're able to get a chopper up. By this stage, the kids are just exhausted. I'm exhausted. Chopper gets up. We all jump in. And then we were so excited and happy because we knew we were going back, but we were all freezing. So I get back, get on the ground. Someone hands me a glass of wine and puts a blanket around us all. And it was just this amazing experience. But at funny, my boss rings me about four days later and he said, um, anything major happen? I go, no, why? <laughs> he said, I just had one of the mothers call me saying that their child told them that they were stuck on a rock with Auntie Jenny and they sung songs till 10 o'clock at night and it was hail and raining and they were really scared, but they were okay. I said, nah, they made it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you got three, what, three muesli bars and a bottle of water? <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's about it. I, I, I needed a little bit more than that. I needed some hot chips and a hamburger. <laughs> John Travolta, big fan of Qantas, so I'm assuming at some point you perhaps interacted? We certainly did. <laughs> John Travolta was our ambassador for Qantas and that was another project that I was selected for because probably because of my experience with all of the kids in the, in the, in the ad, I was tasked with doing a lot of, at the time I was looking after major events and John Travolta would fly to locations. We'd have a major event. I would care for his family. I got to know them very well. And it was an extraordinary uh, privilege to work with his family. I got to know his wife, Kelly, who tragically died last year. And it was very upsetting because she was an amazing person. I often reflect on the funny times that I had with his family. I never for one moment thought I was part of his crew. But, you know, little things like we flew over and took his family to the World Cup in South Africa to watch the Australians play. It was an, an enormous logistical experience and we had a police escort getting him and his family into the stadium. We watched the cup and the next day we get a call to say oh, from his personal secretary saying, John has invited the team to fly back on his aircraft to thank you for all the work we've done in the logistics. And myself and two of my really close friends are sitting up on John Travolta's aircraft being treated as first-class passengers while he's flying the plane. And the most hilarious thing was we had to watch Greece <laughs> On his plane, he, he rolled, we had to watch Greece. His family were on the plane and it was just one of those um, amazing experiences. And the other funny, funny experience I had was we had an amazing person at Qantas named Ken Groves and Ken was responsible for all of the talent management. So he would be the key liaison person with the Travolta family and I would be the security person who would come up with a plan for them. So one night we're in this beautiful hotel in, we're in San Francisco and 
Ken goes, oh, darling, darling, I'm not feeling well. You're going to go and have to pick up JT by yourself. I said, what do you mean? I've got to go by myself. He goes, you'll be right, darling. Just pick him up and he'll want something to eat. So bring him back to the hotel and I'll get the others to come down and meet him and I'll have a little sleep and I'll come down then. So I'm going, I'm out there with the driver and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to talk to John Travolta about? Tell him about the King's Cross Police Station. That'll keep him amused. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that uh, we actually did talk. He gets off his aircraft, which is the 707, and I meet him and I say, look, I'm really sorry, John, but Ken's not well. He goes, oh, no worries, no worries. So jumps in the car. I think that I'll sit in the front, he'll sit in the back. He goes, get in the back. I go, Okay. So then we start chatting and he says to me, oh, I'm so hungry. He goes, you're hungry? And like I'd already had dinner and I'm, I'm ready for bed, you know. And he's, uh, I go, yeah, yeah, I'm starving. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, okay, cool, let's go get some dinner. I go, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I ring the hotel and I go, John Travolta's coming for dinner. They go, yeah, right. I go, no, 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 seriously, I'm bringing John Travolta for dinner. Can we get a table for two? He goes, Yep, okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Or also, they would say, Yeah, what, you and a thousand others? And you go, No, no, just the two of us. <laughs> we show up at this restaurant just near the hotel, and I'd rung all the executives and said, I'm bringing John. He's having dinner. Do you want to come and meet us? They said, Oh, we'll come down in an hour or so. He wants to have some dinner. And I'm going, Oh my. Anyway, so we walk in, and I walk in with him, and I go, Oh, table for two, please. Yeah. <laughs> the waitress is just going, Oh my God. Like, here's the most amazing John Travolta impressionist I have ever seen. That's just incredible. So it's all true. <laughs> um, but it was so interesting. We sat down and I'm thinking in my mind, well, we need to find common ground. So we talked about our kids. He said a funny story. He was telling me what he was doing for Ella, his daughter, for her birthday, where he invited all of her friends to have 24 hours in a toy store. And he goes, what did you do for your daughter? And I said, well, we had a scavenger hunt in the backyard with little maps and things. And he goes, wow, what a great idea. Like <laughs> the little things. And we talked about, he asked me what I did in the police. And, I, and we talked about his movie where he was an undercover cop. And we actually had a really good conversation about the training that he had with police to be able to prepare him for that role. So I kind of figure in communication, if you can find common ground with with anyone, you've got a much better chance of connecting. So it wasn't enough, you know, so Qantas wasn't enough iconic Australian things for you. You then took on the Opera House. I get a phone call, Ken, that I was talking about earlier, saying, darling, darling, apparently they're looking for someone at the Opera House, so I've recommended you. In fact, I did get a phone call from the CEO saying, we'd like you to come in for an interview for head of security at the Opera House we want someone who can change the culture of security. We want a softer approach, a more customer-focused approach. And I thought about it and I thought, well, it's only one building. How hard can it be? The Opera House, one building. I've just had an airline with ports all over the world and 36,000 people. One building can't be hard. The Opera House <laughs> is the most complex beast <laughs> I could never have imagined just how complex it would be. What's the nature of the challenge? What Because, yeah, I, I suppose I feel the same. There's one building, there's a few entrances, people come and go, like, okay, you search some bags now or something. Like, what's the challenge? Well, the, the challenges have been many and varied over the years. So in my – when I first started there, the challenge was terrorism. We went through the Lint Siege where – we had to look at the terror risk, the Opera House being obviously one of the most recognisable buildings in the world. We had to look at 
the screening of patrons. We had to look at the protection of the building itself, a heritage-listed building, and all of the complexities. People go, oh, it's just a building. Like the Opera House has a 1,000 rooms. It has major performance spaces. It's an image to the world. You look at our marketing, you know, you look at what its value is to the economy. I used to lie awake at night going, oh, my God, what if there's a terror attack? Oh, my God, what if there's a breach? It's even to the point where... At times, I would be worried that media would try and breach security to say that there is a weakness of security at the Opera House. They were the things that would keep me awake at night. I had a really highly trained team of security professionals. I was proud of my team because I really think we went from not being guards on gates to being security professionals who could greet customers but also protect the building. Tell us about Oprah coming to the Opera House. So you you did the uh, Oprah live from Australia, the Opera, and Hugh Jackman did the did the flying fox onto the the zip line onto the stage. Right, Hugh Jackman yeah. did do the flying fox. Didn't go to plan, but he lives to tell the tale, which is great. The Oprah coming to town. I'd been at the Opera House. I'd only been there probably twelve months. It was phenomenal. It stopped the city. It was all anyone was talking about in media, in radio. Everybody wanted to look under the seat where Oprah had put a present. These tickets were the hottest tickets in town. I worked on the logistics plan with my great mate, Heather Clark, who was the head of events, and her and I sat down with the police and all of the agencies to work out how we were going to successfully deliver the Oprah juggernaut. We had celebrities like Hugh Jackman. We had Deborah Furness. We had John Bon Jovi. So John Bon Jovi, we used to have a laugh because when he was doing rehearsal, he'd be singing, I'm halfway there living on a prayer. And they, we'd be going, oh, my God, that's us. We're halfway there living on a prayer. Yeah, right. A major lineup of celebrities, Australian talent. It was extraordinary. And then we had these 3,000, I think it was 3,000 guests for each performance that were so excited to come to Oprah's show. Prior to her going on to stage, she had to do a media up in the concert hall. So I'd work with the police and I said to them, you need to have either me or one of my staff with you because you will get lost. The building is so complex. They're going, no, we'll be right, Jen, we'll be right. We know what we're doing. We've got this. We've got the access pass. So we went through it a few times with them. You've got to get her in this lift. You've got to change lifts here. You've got to go back up through the ante room. You've got to take her up the back of the stage. They bring Oprah onto site. There's a parade of police cars and protection. And Oprah's bodyguard was the most amazing. <laughs> he was, I'll just describe him. He was a man of colour, would have been oh, at least 150, 60 kilos and close to seven foot. He was a giant, a gentle giant. And he was like, Jen, I'm the muscle. You do all the planning. You make sure you've got everything for the environment and I'll look after Oprah. So cool. So I'd met him quite a few times. So they get to the police bring her in, got to get her up to concert hall. The media are all waiting upstairs. And one of the cops goes, oh my God, I don't, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know where to go. And then, so they look at me. I go, I'll take her. We jump in the lift, right? So me being head of security, obviously with a VIP of her status, my training is I would only speak to her if she spoke to me. So very politely, I said, after you, into the lift. Her bodyguard's there in the lift and me. So the three of us, we go up in the concert hall lift and she says, hi. I go, hello, uh, Miss Winfrey. It's wonderful to have you. Welcome to the Opera House. She goes, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm the head of security. She goes, no 
way. That is so cool. A woman is the head of security. She was. She was so engaging and she was so authentic because I, I often thought, is she as she appears? She was so authentic and she then goes, I want to give you a cuddle. So she cuddles me and she goes, I am so impressed. She goes, this is my security. Do you know him? And I said, yeah, we've been working together. Outside the lift are all our executive and my CEO who's so excited to meet Oprah. Anyway, we walk out, Oprah's arm in arm with me. He introduces Richard Evans, this is Oprah, and she goes, you've got a female head of security. That is so cool. So he's like looking at me as if to go, oh, that was my moment in the limelight. So it was, yeah, it was an amazing experience. But I think what I took from that is regardless of how famous someone is, that they can be a genuine, authentic person. Hey, 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 hey. I'm a celebrity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love in the theme of what we're doing, the, the, the notion of no regrets, that moment you can look back on and go, I got it right or here's how my life unfolded. I think it's reasonably unusual that the decision you make at 18 or 19, 19 or 20, the career you choose, you can look at it and go, yes, that led to this extraordinary life. You know, if I'd... If I thought, oh, I'll just go into retail, join the bank, it wouldn't have happened, would it? But in in an odd sort of flash, you seem to recognise who you were and look how capable you were at all, at all these things. Did you have any sense of that at 19? <laughs> uh, no, James. I think, <laughs> I, I think, look how capable. I kind of figure that wherever I went, I created a niche that I knew was using my skills. So I certainly wasn't the best detective in the world. I certainly wasn't the best security professional in the world. But I I think I had the ability to use my strength in communication and being able to connect and read and respect people to be able to do my job and to be able to identify where I think my best skills were. Like, you know, the classic was the Still Call Australia Home campaign. I was perfectly suited to that. But interestingly, as the head, like the head of security at the Opera House, I kind of was perfectly suited to that too because it was that fine balance of the customer and that interaction with how to make people feel safe and secure with the background knowledge of having so much industry experience. So I think always being supported by strong friendships and strong mentors and people that were able to direct me and bring out the best in me at the times that mattered. Yeah, yeah. I still think it's fairly extraordinary because what you're describing, trays and personalities and, and, and skills, that would be good in banking or would be good in, in retail or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's un, it seems unusual the kind of things that you say, and it worked in the cops. Like and then it worked, it worked in security. That's what that's what's surprising about it. And surprising that you can see that moment. People choose a course and then they do it, and then there's the first job, and by the fourth job they've kind of got it, and then they pivot a little bit. Yours is so clear. Here's this moment. I'm gonna join the police, and bang, off it goes. Yeah, there was an interesting time. My CEO Louise Heron, about five or six years ago, I'd been in security for so long that I was starting to feel like I wasn't making a difference and you get that burnout and it's being able to recognise a time where you go, maybe I'm not making a difference and I'm not 
having the impact that I want to have. So I went into my CEO, Louise, and I said, and she is the most dynamic lady. She's able to bring out the best in people. She's so supportive of females in the workforce. And I said to her, I think I might leave. Time for me to go. And she said, no, you won't. She said, you're going to take six months off. She said, and then we'll cut it down to four once you've had a bit of a rest. And you're going to come back into the business and we'll work out what's best for you. I did that. It was the mental exhaustion of working in that industry for so long. Took some time off, thought about it, came back. And again, I've fallen into a job now that I absolutely love. So my job now is to look after all of our customer service, our front of house, our our welcome teams, our theatre managers. And I feel so re-energised because this job is all about outstanding customer service and communicating with people and leading teams. And I love leading teams. I love leading people and I love sharing my experiences with people to high achieving people to help them to achieve their goals. So that was a moment where I could have just walked away five years ago and not had this new amazing experience of being the head of visitor services and now being able to lead. I have New people start at the Opera House. I had a security, young security, female security officer the other day say, I feel so welcome here and I want to learn. So I've, I've now got to pay back to those people to be able to help guide people on their journey now from my experience. It's not about academic, it's not about how many MBAs you've got, it's about finding those opportunities and running with them. Yeah, yeah. What was the scariest moment? Like, was, was it something in the police? Was it something when you were with, with Qantas? Was it an opera house event? What was the scariest thing? There's been many scary times. When I say scary, different types of scary, I suppose, you know, in the, in the opera house, it was always about that fear of protecting that building. I think one of the most challenging times I had in the police was a story whereby I was working as an undercover detective, so dressed in my jeans and T-shirt, working out in very west of Western Sydney. So I was working with a person who, were, who was introducing me to someone who was going to sell me some drugs. I was wearing a wire. We had a number of police cars doing surveillance, so they were monitoring me. And I go out to what I thought was a house in, in Western Sydney. But when we get there... It's a block of units, dingy, grey, old block of units, run down, really an area where I thought, oh, this isn't a great area. So then we go, I'm walking up the stairs and I, of course, you're wearing a wire. I keep describing what I'm seeing as I'm going up the stairs, going, you know, why are we walking up so many stairs? We're almost at the fourth floor. Why are we up here? And I walk in and I see a heavily tattooed woman and a male with a gun sitting on the lounge. My heart starts to race, feel the blood pumping. I'm thinking, oh, my God. So I start to describe what I'm seeing as much as I could without making it obvious. So I walk in, then I hear him say, lock the door, and I could hear it go latch, latch. I'm feeling really anxious, nervous, I start to swear. I go, what are you closing the doors for? What's what's going on? Then he says to the female, take her into the bedroom, search her so we know she's not a cop. So that's when I really start to fear because I know that I'm wearing a wire. 
I quickly think and I think about my opera house career now. I could have been an actor. So I walk in. I walk in to this bedroom. So immediately I lift up my top, taking my bra with me. So I've got, you know, full full exposure of my breasts. I grab her head and I go, you want a piece of this? I grab a head and I push it between my chest and I'm going, come on, come on, come on. Do you want a piece of this? Do you want a piece of this? Then... I'm thinking, all right, what do I do now? So then she she pushes away from me. I then pull my pants down. I go, you want a piece of this? You want a piece of this? You want a piece of this? So I start acting like a completely crazed woman. And then she goes, get dressed, get dressed. So she leaves me. I start breathing like I am just so distressed. Get the wire back, pull my clothes down. I've got, you know, I'm, I'm at this stage I'm thinking, deep breaths, deep breaths, deep breaths, walk back out. And he says, well, to the heavily tattooed woman, he said, uh, well, you reckon she's a cop? She goes, no, she's a bloody lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That's, I mean, you just described like the best scene in a film. Like we'd be, I don't mean because it's nude, but I just mean because we'd be terrified. Like we'd be, that's amazing. And so then you were able to put it yourself back together and stuff. Did the wire keep working? The wire did keep working and the job proceeded and we were very fortunate because it turned into quite a big job. Um, it didn't end that day, but eventually it ended in a really good result. But it was a it made me reflect on this is probably a little more dangerous than I ever had thought. Wow. People can't people can't see me listening to that, but I was I was looking at myself while you were just telling that, and my my mouth was actually open, like I was, oh, <laughs> oh my god, what what happened? How did you get out of here? That's that is terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Jenny, thank you so much. Lovely talking to you today. In the next episode of Life's Booming No Regrets, discover how a Kiwi electrician ends up living in a treehouse and meets Elizabeth Taylor, not at the same time. Thanks for listening in to this episode of Life's Booming No Regrets. If you've loved this story as much as I did, don't forget to tell all your friends in person and online. We'd love it if you left us a review. Of course, if you've got a great story of your own, drop us a line. Life's booming at seniors.com.au. I'm James Valentine. I'll speak with you next time. Listener.